Progressive presents The Sounds of the Old World. The year is 2019, and someone is waiting for the previews to start in a movie theater. Hey, you want anything? Popcorn? Soda? No, nothing? This has been The Sounds of the Old World. Brought to you by Progressive, where drivers can still switch and save like it's 2019. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. HD Smartcast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production. Brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, I'm Dhamini and you're listening to Gender Question. Here, we will look at an issue that's in the news using the lens of gender. The idea is to take a blind spot and throw some light on it. Devaki Jain is one of the country's best-known developmental economists. Born before independence, she became a young adult in the heady, idealistic days of the 1950s, which was when she began to call herself a Gandhian social activist. One of her biggest contributions is the way she gendered data. Starting the 1970s, she trained her sights on the way the National Sample Survey Office collected data on economic contribution. Much of the time, data on women's economic contribution was not even being collected, she found. There was a deep methodological flaw in the approach of measurement. With a small grant from the Institute of Social Studies Trust in 1976, Devaki, along with other researchers, found that female workforce participation rates were in fact higher than the participation rates for men among the landless in India. In her recently released memoir, The Brass Notebook, Devaki, who is now 87, writes that this finding challenged this embedded view that the man was the main breadwinner of the household. The study that came out of the grant received widespread attention and it became a kind of a lifetime project for Devaki because she began to then focus on the roles that women occupy in the economy and also she began to help develop methods of data collection that revealed the complexity of their involvement. Here are some edited excerpts of a conversation that I recently had with her in her New Delhi residence. Why did I think of the fact that I want to... It was one of those things that you've heard about in other people's stories that you see the statistic that is coming out, it shows that women are really in the work labor force in a much lower percentage than men. Then you have a visual of women doing work as you drive through India, carrying brakes, digging earth. So I, I can't explain what happened to me. I just felt I must explore this. You cannot say it was because of somebody's writing or somebody's speech. It is one of those things, you know, that just hits you that I'll correct the data. So I call it counting correctly and you know, just to make you laugh as I finished the study and it got quite a big bang and every economist who's worth his name in India, Kendra, Chukumar, Chakravarti, you name them, they all came to a seminar in which I presented the paper showing the way the NSSO was collecting data about women was wrong and all that. So it was one of those, what shall I say, patakas. And I used to say to my colleagues, listen, when I die and you put me into a grave, make my hands shout, count correctly. <laughs> I, was so, I was so fascinated and so gripped by the fact that the labor of women was not giving, being given its recognition. 
now the feminists are more interested or getting more too interested i feel in what is called unpaid household work you know care they call it but i think even today where i would my emphasis would be on the economic contribution and i don't think just expanding the word economic to include housework is sufficiently valuable for women workers i think i want to make the woman who is making a contribution to formal economic gdp as it is erroneously collected agreed but we can't take on too many battles at the same time first her work in contribution to gdp must be counted a, a wage must be given it should come under labor laws and i can give you so many examples even today of women's economic contribution let me give you an example would you be interested you take i've studied these that's what i'm telling you you take silk you know the silk comes out of the rearing of silkworms and you know silkworms are reared in small thatched houses and where the mulberry leaves are brought and the worms are if you go to one of those villages in karnataka where they're doing this little shacks will have shelves with cane trays in them and the worms will be there and they will work all night to bring mulberry leaves the woman sleeps there because every 3 hours this bloody worm has to be fed so she puts the leaves they eat it then they shit and all that has to be cleaned every 3 hours so when the worm is hungry the women in canada say to me it's got fever hola jora ban bete de ma that means it's got fever so then you feed it and they have to clean it and they have to get up in the night every 3 hours to feed the worm because unless that worm becomes fat its productivity is not enough now who has counted this who has said that there's a woman there that is a worm rarer you have to now add to the occupational list of nsso and say worm rarer is a profession it's not so you only see ultimate which is the yarn weaving which gets recognition and then of course the silk product and the entire silkworm market is dominated by men so these women struggle the worms get ready for and the worm market is out there and they don't go there now that occupation is not recognized there is no wage fixation for that that is the rearing of silkworms inside the house and yet if it not reared cleaned shit cleaned food given there would be no silk so you see there are so many like that you go to orissa and you see what is called the silverware from orissa you go to a household the man is creating beautiful goods the woman is sitting there bashing the silver to make it malleable is she given an occupation you go to kashmir to carpet weaving the woman is there getting the wool even making the sometimes even putting the threads on the frame it's not considered an occupation there is no wage for it that's where i think we have to do counting correctly and making the contribution to the gdp as a way of saying that she is a worker the nss collects data only by interrogating a citizen it does not collect data by going to a field and saying what are they doing fair enough it's a data, statistical body now whether the woman has been sufficiently made aware say mai bhi karte hu we don't know so that's an area where i think personally i think if the activists could get busy 
enabling women to speak about their economic contribution, to recognize it first as an economic contribution and then to say it in a questionnaire, to be brilliant. But I have no idea whether that's happening. In 1980, Devaki and two other researchers, Nalini Singh and Malini Chand, came out with a book called Women's Quest for Power, which is sadly out of print now. The book looked at five case studies of women's collectives, such as Seva in Ahmedabad, which is a collective of women's informal workers, and Lajat Papad, the famous collective that sells the savoury papad. In that era, if you remember, while Seva was an interesting, luminous new arrival on the scene, we had other rivals, other arrivals, I don't mean rivals. I was fascinated by the Amul Cooperative. In fact, that book, Women's Quest for Power, puts five such efforts at one, what we call, level playing field. It doesn't make Seva into the pole and the other. Dairy cooperatives, which later became Amul, were a stunning example of a occupation which is only a woman's occupation being strengthened through collective. Similarly, there were, I also noticed, women-led struggles for economic survival. That was the Manipur women's market in Ketil. So that book, Women's Quest for Power, five such endeavors at a level playing field. Lijat Papad, Manipur struggle, Ila struggle and diaries. None of those really became as famous and as spread as Seva. Even before this book came out, in 1975, Devaki had edited Indian Women, a volume of scholarly work on the occasion of the International Year of the Women that was declared by the United Nations. Devaki invited scholars like Andrabete, Veena Das, Ashok Rudra and Romila Thapar, drawing them out from their usual areas of research, as she puts it in her memoir, to challenge themselves with new and fresh questions about the status of women. One of the most interesting pieces that emerged from it was Ashish Bose's. Ashish Bose was a professor in Delhi University who drew attention to the declining sex ratio between 1901 and 1971 from 972 females per 1000 males to 930 females per 1000 males. As Devaki writes in the Brass Notebook, this was one of the earliest intimations of what later became widely understood as the practice of sex-selective abortions and female infanticide. Another important work of feminist research was produced around the same time, a document called Towards Equality, which was published by the Committee on the Status of Women, comprising feminist scholars like Veena Mazumdar and Lotika Sarkar, among others. Truly. That was a pivotal year as the country began to think in terms of gender and took notice of what was going on with half of its population. The book was commissioned by government independently of what happened with the CSWI. That committee was set up, but in the meantime, Sheila Dhar, who was the director of publications at the time, had commissioned me to write this book because, interestingly, and that's where Romila's comes into my life, in a, in a professional sense. There was a magazine or journal in those days called Seminar, done by the, the, the Tapers, Ramesh and Raj Tapar. Because we were coming into 75, they wanted an issue which was talking about status of women. And I'd never written or done anything about women. But apparently, 
I went to Ramila, who was my best friend. We were both teaching at the same at the university, 62. Or earlier, we started in 62. So Ramila came and said, look, there, my brother is doing this thing. I'm writing something. You also write something. I said, I have no clue. So she said, think about something. So I thought about it and she helped me to go to the museum. You know, she really guided me on where to find something. So I told her that one of the things I've been always thinking about is how the blessing that was given to girls was Ahalya Sita, Draupadi, Tara, Mandudri, all women who were servile to their men. So she said, write that and write what you feel now. So that's how that book, that article came out in the first issue of Indian Women that seminar brought out. That led to Sheila Dhar saying, hey, you've written that piece, you come and do the book for us. Towards Equality this year is a much better research and a bigger contribution to understanding women than my book. Mine I put together by asking friends. When I was asked to do the book, I was lost. So I asked all my friends in the academic field to write chapters and they did. And in a way, it's, it's an interesting profile book. But its value was something that later CSWI took forward. That is, there was a man called Ashish Bose who is no more. He did this demographic profile for me, which by the way, he did it for me, but then Lotika Sarkar said, look, can we use it for the CSWI? I said, sure. Devaki was also instrumental, along with other feminists in the women's movements around the world, in creating a network of international solidarity. Now, this was particularly important because international donor agencies often had a Eurocentric approach to underdeveloped countries of the Global South. And this was something that Deviki herself analyzed in the early 80s when she studied 100 reports of such North-South transfer of funds for the development of women. She found that in fact virtually all of them either had had no impact or had had a negative impact as the women's roles had not been adequately identified by the donor agencies. One of the organizations that she helped create was DAWN, an acronym for Development Alternatives with Women for a New Era. This emerged when Devaki organized a meeting in 1984 in Bangalore, inviting feminists from different so-called third world countries. The three-day meeting transformed the very framework that the United Nations had laid out for the upcoming Nairobi conference of 1985. There was this famous uh, Danish economist called Esther Bozerup, and she wrote a book on women in agriculture in Africa. In a way, though we have drowned her, in the sense that we have moved beyond her, she was the first person in the world to show that women were actually engaged in agriculture, in planting and in growing crops in Africa, whereas women are always seen as subsidiary and men are seen as farmers. So the kind of complete over of what is occupation. And so women digging was what we thought, but women as farmers. Mm -hmm. That changed. Now like that, we felt that we could also change how they looked at us, not as, if you only look at a UNESCO report, say in the 1970s, they described all our countries as being full of parda, malnourished women, subordinated. You would never believe that there was a Devaki Jain living there. So we had that perception. So with that perception, they were designing development for us. And it was so erroneous because that was not what was. So we decided to do self-definition. I'll tell you, USAID felt that we in, in India, the farmers, agriculture community, women were at home 
processing grain like in Denmark, the women are at home baking bread, which the men bring the wheat. In India, no. They were actually weeding the fields. So all those development interventions they wanted to do were related to perceptions of male and female gender work in the white countries. So he felt that had to be upturned. So I called women from these. Now I could not, I could do it only because I had been to all the UN conferences where I had met a woman from the Caribbean, a woman from Fiji. So I knew that there were these brown black women. Then I had a lot of goodwill from the white countries. So Ford founded it, the Scandinavians came and said, yeah, good. And so we were able to describe our continents. And that was the most brilliant thing we did. That this one meeting where the African woman said, our issue is this. The Pacific woman said, our issue is this. So we were able to took it according to continental issues and not only female-male issues, which, is, which made it into a macroeconomic voice and not a woman-woman voice. And that's the big transformation that Dawn brought out. If you have any questions, do reach out to me at the Red Dhamini on Twitter. You can also leave your feedback at HT Smartcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.